we will look this morning in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. This is God's holy word. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for this truth, and that is your word, and yet we pray that you would offer to us a blessing, that which is old, perhaps familiar. May you, by the power of your spirit, altogether make it unfamiliar and life-giving that we might see Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We're in Acts chapter 2, one of the most important days in the life of the church, and I would argue in the history of the world has just taken place. Pentecost, the, the sending of the Spirit of God, that's what we've been talking about the last two weeks, both the sending of the Spirit and the sermon in which the Apostle Peter preached. It changed everything that God's Spirit would come and inhabit His people, moving from one central location, that is the temple, into the lives of His people. And what was the result? If you were to do a chronological timeline, you would find out in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, you, you have 11 disciples, and at some point there becomes 120, and here we are, and there's 3,000, perhaps even more. There's a massive growth of the church, perhaps a birthday, you might say, of the church, those who were born again as children of God, having their sins forgiven because of Christ's atoning work. I think it would be important for us to consider church. It might be argued that there is no more important institution in the history of the world than the church. You can read all throughout history same pattern happens. Empires rise and yet fall. But not the church. The church might have good days and bad days, bigger days and smaller days, but they have a bedrock promise, and that is its maker, its builder is God. And therefore, they have a promise that no matter what the ways of the world, the church will, in fact, endure. There is no more important institution, you might say, than the church. You might even argue there's no greater influence on the world than what the church has done. When you look throughout the history of the world, who produces some of the greatest scientific minds? The church. When you think about medicine and the faithful hospitality of people, where did that originate? The church. You think about human rights, 
human dignity. Where do you get that? The church. And so it puts us here this morning. What's the church? Who is the church? What's the church like? How are we to describe it? I think it begs the question, doesn't it? What is the church? Good news for you is we will not answer that in its entirety. We don't have enough time. But we will talk specifically about the worship of the church. But it does beg the question, how would you tell people about your church? You meet strangers, or maybe they met you. How do you talk about this place? Do you talk about your senior pastor? How great of a man he is, how tall of a man, in fact, maybe literally taller than the one you're talking to. That is definitely true for me. Do you talk about its history? I love having conversations with some of you older saints who can describe for me the history of this church. Do you describe its current growth or programs, people? How do you talk about this church? I argued a few months ago, some of you have already thought, you know, I've heard that before. You have. I argued, how should you describe this church? One word, please, just one word. Let's agree on that this morning. Ordinary. Ordinary. Now, that's not the word that most of you were thinking, and some of you probably just took offense to it. So let me provide a little bit of context. Ordinary, it it shows up in the shorter catechism. When the question is, how does Christ benefit, or how do we receive the benefits of redemption in Christ? And the answer is quite simple. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Don't worry about all of it. But what is being said here? How should we define church? Ordinary, not boring, not lacking interest. Ordinary was used of the disciples, Acts chapter 4. When the Romans were uncertain, how is all of this taking place? These are ordinary men. They didn't mean boring men. They clearly were creating some problems. What did they mean? They, They didn't have the pharisaical training. They were just men, men who had been with Jesus. And so when we talk about ordinary and we talk about church, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the regular, the common, the the steady use of, or maybe you would say the usual order. We want to be an ordinary church, a steady use of, But we want to ask the question, what should we use? What should be ordinary about us? And before we get into some of the specifics as to how Luke describes, I want you to to think about how they saw their church, how they understood the context of their church. What did they believe about their church? Because you and I, we read this and we think, I want to be a part of that church. You, you read this text and you all just go, that sounds wonderful. None of you thought that seemed stressful. 
that's a lot. It's refreshingly ordinary, simple. How is it that they are so simple? They don't have a big production. There's nothing exciting about its elements when you read it. You're not thinking that will entertain everybody. They weren't talking about music and instruments and presentations and screens or anything. They were just using some basic, ordinary words. It's simple. But why? Well, because they knew their Old Testament. You remember church in the Old Testament, don't you? They often talked about the temple. That was the big gathering in Jerusalem in which God's people would gather to worship. But there was a problem with the Old Testament temple in the fact that not everyone lived in Jerusalem. And you didn't get to get on 75 and take a quick trip there. It took quite amount of time. It was dangerous. The weather was not friendly. They didn't have air condition in their chariot. It wasn't working that way. So how were the people of God to worship when they couldn't get to Jerusalem? They had synagogue. Those are different. The temple and the synagogue are not the exact same thing. How do you differentiate the difference? Well, it's, it's, it is actually simple. What you could do at the temple, the day of atonement. You made sacrifices. And so when people were there at the temple, they had a liturgy that prepared them to hear God's word to, read to them. They would pray and they would sing and they would have sacrifice. But you could not do that at the synagogue. You had to remove every aspect of sacrifice from the synagogue. That would mean any songs about it, any animal sacrifice, any altar, any priest, all of that would have been removed in the synagogue. And so when you remove the entire liturgy of sacrifice, what are you left with? The reading of God's word, praying together, singing together, perhaps even eating together. And so when Jesus ascends on high and church begins, how does the early church begin? You did not read that and think, well, that was elaborate. That took a whole lot of people to figure out. It was quite simple. It was very ordinary, but it was very intentional. You remember that conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman, an issue of worship. And she's talking about the mountain in which we're to worship on. And what does Jesus say to her? There's a time coming where you will not worship on that mountain or there or the temple. God is seeking worshipers who do so in spirit and in truth. That's the kind of worshiper the Father is seeking. Why is God seeking such a worshiper? Because you can do it anywhere. It's not bound by geographical locations. It's not bound by weather or seasons. You can worship in Antarctica. You can worship in Iraq. You can worship in North Korea. You can worship in the United States. Hot, cold, rainy, it doesn't matter. You can worship because God has made the worship of him simple. Word, the word. Pray. Fellowship. Sing together, sacraments. And so when the disciples begin this church, they have a very simple understanding of church. And it's quite refreshing, isn't it? 
But in their understanding of the simple worship, there's another word that Luke uses. How does he describe their worship? He begins very quickly, doesn't he? And they devoted. Now, none of you thought that was some difficult theological term. You weren't reading it thinking, I've never heard that before. I don't understand. In fact, I would venture to think most of you, we could describe your day yesterday as devoted. There was a lot of college football on. You're not wondering what does it mean to be devoted. And it's not the issue of trying to figure out what is devotion. The problem is our object of devotion. What do we give our devotion to? That is what Luke is saying. If devotion means, well, to continue steadfastly, what does Luke say the church and the people of the church should devote themselves to? It's an, it's an immediate challenge. It's a, it's a poking at our heart because he doesn't say anything about the world. It's entirely focused on who and what God is like. It challenges us. What are we doing this morning? Are we just participating? Is it just an optional thing? An issue of convenience? If I got enough sleep, I don't feel too tired or worn down. It says we're meant to be members. We're meant to be those who are engaged. It it's not led up to circumstances of just, I felt like it or I didn't. These people, you read this text, didn't you? And you didn't hear or think anything of reluctance. In fact, what were the words that Luke used to describe their worship? They were in awe. They had glad and generous hearts. They were praising God. They went to church not because they had to. They, they went to church because they wanted to. They were devoted. What does that mean? When we talk about a postmodern society, what does it mean to be devoted? The, the world's not going to get mad at you for going to church. They might call you some names if you go twice a day. But they're not going to get mad at you just generally because you went to church. What do we want our church to be like? Devotion is not the minimum. It's not the check the box. I did what I was at least required to. These people were energetic. They were enthusiastic. They were passionate about being together in the presence of God day after day an ordinary church, but they were devoted. Now, what did they devote themselves to? That's what you're waiting on, isn't it? What did church look like? What did it feel like? Four points. I won't be four points Presbyterian style. I'll just kind of quickly go through four points. I want you to know you, you will get lunch today. But what are the four elements, and what does it mean for us? The first, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That alone could be a sermon. I promise it won't be, but it could be a sermon. What is it that they're devoting to when we say the apostles' teaching? I want to caution you. There are several churches in Atlanta 
Many of you have driven from places and you pass by several churches on your way here. But this is not the 1980s. We used to drive by church after church and have an assumption, didn't we? The gospel was present. Many churches that you drive by, they have a building that signifies church, but there is no gospel preaching in it. There might be people gathered. There might be conversations had, words shared, no gospel. No picture of Jesus and saved by grace alone and through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's no gospel preaching in them. It's one of the hardest questions many people have to answer, especially young people, college students. Where do I go to church? If you are new here, and and I mean new meaning you've just moved to the city, where do you go to church? Google perhaps is not your best friend in just looking up churches. How do we define what is a good church, that I'm in the right place, that they in fact teach the apostles' teaching? They're devoted to what we would say the word is. There are many churches with lots of big things and good things going on. There's lots of entertainment, but no gospel. You understand it's much easier to do that. It's much easier to get up and tell some funny stories, flattering stories, but fail to tell people the truth. I, in fact, would tell you it's easier to get up and talk about controversial issues, politics, race, gender. It's far easier to give your opinion on those things. It's much harder to look people in the face and say, what is truth? The truth is there's not a problem out there. There's a problem within you, within me. It's much harder to tell people that you can't save yourself. You can't do enough to get yourself saved. That it's by the work of God and God alone. It's much harder to have a picture, a church that isn't about themselves. That isn't trying to broadcast themselves but they want to broadcast Jesus. Where do I go to church? How do I know what the apostles' teaching is like? They're committed to it. That's why the word is used, devoted. That's what's unique about this church. They give great attention to the word of God. And that's what they're committed to because churches can be committed to a lot of things, can't they? But Luke says there's only a few things that the church of Jesus Christ is to devote themselves to. And so what did they do? They preached the truth from the Old Testament. Now, many of you have to ask that question. Many churches say, I'm telling you the truth. I'm preaching truth. How do you know? Let me give you one clear way to do it. You don't just come in and listen. You bring a Bible with you. You open it, put it in your lap, and you read what they read. Does it say what they, in fact, are saying? If there's a contradiction, they're always wrong. 
They are always wrong. How do you know your church is preaching truth? Because you can clearly see it in the scripture. That church is to devote themselves to it. It's not a mistake that Luke puts this first on the list. He wants them to be devoted, devoted to truth. You know, we always ask the question, if, if you could go back in time, where would you go? What happens if we flip that question around? I wonder what the disciples of this time would say if they were here today. How would we answer the question of church? Peter, we just want a little bit of balance. We want some laughter, some story, some feel-good thing about us. We want a little bit more music, a little bit less sermon. You might already think that. We want more people. What we would like less of is preaching of, of truth. Friends, you know that that is never good for your soul. You never need less truth. You always need more truth. I always need more truth. You might not want it. You might fail to understand it. You might even fail to apply it. But we never need less truth. It always should be a description of this church and of you and myself. We are devoted to the apostles' teaching. That is the word of God written from Genesis to Revelation with no addition and no subtraction. That is what we want to be a people of, and we always need it. Not just on the Lord's day, but every day. We need more truth, and we want God's truth. Because when we say we would like a little bit less, what we're saying is, God, you're actually not sovereign and your word is actually not sufficient. But if you are to say God is sovereign and his word is sufficient, then you have to understand the sovereign God works in the ways in which he wants to work. And he's told you, this is how I work. I work at church. I work with my word through the power and application of my spirit in your life. And do you know what's beautiful about that is the truth that they were devoted had an effect. Do you know what the effect was? Beautiful. They all had the same truth. Nobody stood up and said, that's my truth and that's your truth. They had one truth, true truth. They had the same truth. That's why Paul goes over and over and over again in his epistles to talk about being what? Of one mind, of one accord, of one love, of one spirit, of one baptism. He's trying to tell you, you are to be unified in your understanding of truth. We don't need uniformity. We don't need everyone to look the same. We don't everyone need everyone to think the same ideas. We need everyone to have the same biblical conviction of who is God and what is he like. We want truth. And this church, that is the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What else did they devote themselves to? The fellowship. It's a buzzword. We love that term. Let's just have a fellowship event. We were fellowshipping. I went to fellowship. I mean, all kinds of weird phrases that we use. What is 
fellowship mean? What is Luke talking about when he says fellowship? It's actually quite profound. You cannot find this word anywhere in the Gospels. This is the first occurrence. You've heard the Greek word, I'm sure, because some people, they don't want to say fellowship. They want to say, we want to have koinonia, which is just weird. Nobody knows what that means. But that's the Greek word, isn't it? Koinonia. When you're in seminary, you, you take languages, not the fun ones like French, Spanish, and English, all that kind of stuff. You take the hard ones that no one ever understands, Hebrew and Greek. But do you know what they call it? The style of Greek that you learn, it's called koine Greek. It's meant to say the, the commonality. It's the, well, it's the street language of Greek. That's what the people would have spoken. That's what the common man understood. And so what's the point? In every New Testament occurrence of the word koinonia, what you get is there is a sharing, but two ways. You share something with someone. Maybe you have a possession and you're sharing it with them, or you share in something with someone. You have a shared experience. So it's either I share something, I give you something, or we share it together. It means we experienced it together. What it means, what Luke is saying is we are not a Bible-believing only church. That is doctrine and prayer. We're a Bible-living church. We do this together. We are of one mind, one core conviction, and we, we gather together. And I would want to tell you, that is profound. You understand some of the false logic, right? This is not the communism text. We're not here to talk about it. They believed in personal property. Read it. They had their own homes. They had their own possessions. So they had small things and big things. Keep your house. Keep your food. That's not what they're saying. But they are saying, be generous in how you think about church. They are saying, be generous in how you think about the body of Christ. But did you hear the context? It's a hard word for us to swallow today. These people gathered together. They were all together. We cannot minimize that. We want to say, you didn't have the means. You didn't have the technology. So of course you came together. You couldn't live stream your stuff. They wouldn't use live stream because what they're saying is what is most important is to be together in the same room with the same purpose. They would say, we don't want virtual church. We want in-person church. We want people. Now, as I have just offended several of you, let me say there are providential reasons for you to stay at home. But I would like to emphasize the word providential, not personal. Providential reasons if you are sick. Legitimately so. We're not saying, please come and infect everybody. That's not what they were sharing together. Although perhaps, but we are saying this moment every week is your most important moment of every week. Coming together in worship is vital to your Christian life. People who want to say worship expressions allow for you just to stay home. 
that is deadly and dangerous because we then come up with terms that say things like this. You know, church, this isn't my thing. I can watch Joe across the world in my pajamas. Church isn't my thing. I don't want to go. I don't want to be there. I don't like it that they just read one passage and try to stick to that one passage. I would like for them to have a theme or a topic and tell me about myself. I don't want them to go verse by verse. It's not my thing. I just am not feeling it. It doesn't matter what you feel, and it doesn't matter what you think. I want you to know church is not my thing, and it's not your thing. Your feelings never govern the church. It never guides the church. It never defines the church. God defines the church. For only God has given his life for the church that she might, in fact, live. The church is entirely based on the foundation of God, not our feelings, not our desires, not our wants, not our interests. So we gather together because we're devoted to the word and to each other. We want to be in fellowship with one another. How does it fit? It fits because what Luke is saying is fellowship is extremely costly. It's extremely costly. Perhaps it might mean that you give materialistically. People are in need. But it will always mean you have to give relationally, and that is scary. What happens if they know that I sinned on Tuesday? It's personally one of the scariest things to preach and have a family because I get to come up here and tell you, don't do that, and they all look at me, why did you do that? That's fellowship. It's costly. We are giving of ourselves to each other because we are one in Christ. And so when we say things like, you know, I just want to go back to the time of the early church. No, you do not. Do you remember how it was formed? It wasn't formed in a it wasn't formed in a vacuum. They were under great amounts of persecution. They were having to hide from the enemy, both Rome and in fact the other enemy, the big one, Satan. They're always engaging in problems. Just wait. We're going to get into acts You'll enjoy the mess that they called church. But the problems and the persecution never push them away from gathering together with the people of God. It's, it's our greatest witness to the world. We want people to drive by on Sunday morning and look at that lot and think, what the heck is going on in there? Dare I say, we want people to drive by Sunday evening, Super Bowl Sunday, Christmas, and every other taboo holiday you could think of. We want them to drive and say, why are those people gathered on a day like today? And we have a grand and glorious answer for them because we are of the same truth and we're in it together. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the fellowship. I promise I won't be as long on the breaking of bread and prayers. 
but they were devoted to the breaking of bread. There's a lot of controversy over what that means. Friends, it probably means that they both had meals together at their homes and they engaged in the Lord's Supper. So you can evaluate both. Verses, I think it's 46, will tell you that they ate together in their homes. No, they weren't doing the Lord's Supper there. But verse 42 does put it in a context of worship. They administered the Lord's Supper. They had a deep desire for such a sacrament to understanding who Jesus was. It was extremely important to them. In fact, it's extremely important to the church. Paul later is going to rebuke people for abusing that sacrament. If you read church history, what you're gonna find out is it got so out of hand, they basically canceled the sacrament. There were only portions of the sacrament that were allowed. You couldn't even have a cup any longer. It was just bread. And so at the Reformation, when they were bringing people back to the word, they also brought the Lord's Supper back in. And they didn't wanna just emphasize taking the Lord's Supper. They wanted to intensify it and say, be careful how you take it and be careful who should take it because it's a holy sacrament. It's not just bread in a cup. It's much bigger than that. It's what it pictures. It's what who stands behind it. It's what who blesses it. And so they came together and they shared a meal. And then they prayed. But I want you to see how Luke tells you that they prayed. He doesn't just say, and prayer. He puts a definite article there, the prayers. It means that they, they had prayers specifically positioned in worship to pray. They were a people of God who understood the people of God prayed. They had the Old Testament. You and I have the New Testament. Paul gives us outlines of what we should pray, who we should pray for. You can read some of it in 1 Timothy 2. We're to be a church who prays. It's modeled through the person of Jesus in Luke's gospel. And Luke, I think, is saying, if you want to understand the vitality, the the health of your church, Look at your prayer meeting. Look at the people who pray. People who pray know who's in control and recognize they're they're hopeless without it. They need prayer. I wonder what some of you think. What do you think when we're praying? When we say, let's go to the Lord in prayer, you bow your head. Will you just hurry up? Get through that. We would, like, we would like more sermons. Probably most of you are not saying that. You might be saying, we want more songs. I would like more songs. I would like to sing more songs. I would like different songs, different instruments. I want funnier sermons, better sermons. What are you thinking about when we're praying? Could we just rush through this? Could we just get to the next thing? I want to caution you because when we look into our heart, do you know what we find? They're just excuses. They're just excuses. Do you know why? Some of us who are interested in the sermon more than songs, we don't want to sing. Why? Because what happens if I got so captivated by the one I was worshiping, my hands found themselves in the air? What happens if people saw me raise my hands? What happens if people heard me sing loudly? What would they think about me? Maybe some of you are like, I would like less sermons. 
I don't wanna actually have to listen because what happens if the truth of what he says enters into my heart and convicts me? You recognize it's a self-security that says, I don't want the gospel to work in my life because if it does, I'm not going to be able to stay the same. It's the nature of the gospel. It's transformative. But these people said, we want to be a people who pray, who sing, who preach, who eat together. And prayer is just one way. But it's not a means to an end. It is, in fact, an end of itself. You get to commune with God when you pray. You're not hoping for something more. You get it immediately when you and I pray. So let's not rush prayer. In this service, or even on Wednesday night, let's be a church who says, we devote ourselves to the word, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. That's what Luke is saying. It's the most important thing you do. It's the most important thing I do. We should want to be nowhere else because of what takes place here. This church kept the main thing, you could say, the main thing. They worshiped and devoted themselves. They don't say, I have come to trust in Jesus, but I don't care about doctrine. I don't want to know what it is that you believe. That is just for the pastors. That is for the Sunday school teachers. That's for the elders. No, doctrine is for all. That's what Luke is saying. We all, in fact, have a doctrine. The question is, what is yours? What is it that you believe and how is it that you apply it? And the New Testament, well, it's going to say Christians, Christianity, discipleship. It's those who are devoted to doctrine because that's what dictates decisions. And that's what this church did. They were in awe. They worshiped together. They longed to be together. And do you see what Luke says? When you're a church who devotes yourself to that, you don't grow spiritually only. You grow numerically because God is at work in the plentiful harvest of bringing more home. The church is vitally important. The world does not, most likely will not read the Bible but they do read its people. They read the church. You are the expression of who Jesus is in life. May we be a church that's ordinary, that points people to someone who's extraordinary. We pray to that end. Our God and our Father, we want to recognize the privilege of worship, and yet we want to also recognize its purpose and its weight. And we're thankful that, in fact, worship is not all dependent upon us because in and of ourselves, we cannot fulfill that great task. We need the help of another. We were granted it in the person and work of Christ, and then we long for the presence and power of the Spirit to move in us so that we, in fact, would be a church who says we want to be ordinary. A group of brothers and sisters who devote themselves to truth, 
devote themselves to costly living, of giving of themselves, those who are devoted to eating together, both the sacrament and meals, and those who are devoted to praying. We want the world to see Jesus because they've seen us. So help us be an ordinary church, one that makes much of Christ, in whose name we pray.